Welcome to episode 90 of the Derek Diamond Experience podcast. As always, I am coming to you from the Gulf Coast of Pensacola, Florida. It is episode 90, which means we are 10 episodes away from number 100. And I can't thank you listeners enough for your continued support, all the great feedback you guys have given me. Thank you to all the guests who have taken time out of their busy schedules to talk with me about their careers their lives, and so many cool subjects, so many cool conversations. I can't thank all of you guys enough. And I have several great guests coming up over the next few weeks that I can't wait for you guys to hear. And some of those include Memphis wrestling broadcast legend Lance Russell, star of Back to the Future, Miss Claudia Wells, Dave Dorman, who's a comic book artist and was also voted by the fans as the number one Star Wars artist of all time. An exclusive comedy show that was held at the Handlebar here in Pensacola. I got to record the audio from it. You'll actually be hearing that episode next week. But this week, we are continuing our conversation with location sound mixer, Mr. Steve Baker. And we really get into the specifics of location sound mixing and what goes into it. And I think anyone who wants to get into sound should really listen to this episode because Steve does an amazing job of describing what he does to prep for a shoot, the steps that he has to go through, what type of gear he uses, gives some really good advice for anyone who wants to get into sound. So I think this would be a great learning tool for those that are aspiring to do that. And Steve tells so many more cool stories, and it was fun just sitting with him. You know, we talked for over two hours, and it was one of the most fun conversations that I've ever had while doing this show. So, Steve, thank you once again. If you're listening, thank you again very much for taking the time to do this interview. It was a lot of fun, and it was it was just great. But before we get to the interview with Steve, I have a quick question for you. Are you looking for new original music? If so, you should check out Atomics, the brand new EP from my close friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, featuring the vocals of Joey Trincali. It has three brand new tracks, including their single Tomorrow's Plan, which is also the theme song of this very podcast. This EP is unlike anything the Unicorn Wranglers have done before. So support local music and check out Atomics, which is available now on iTunes and Spotify, and it's only $2.97. You can also follow the Unicorn Wranglers on social media. Like them on Facebook, just search for the Unicorn Wranglers, and follow them on Twitter and Instagram, at Wranglers. And be sure to check out their website, theunicornwranglers.com. And without further ado, here is part two of my conversation with Steve Baker. So we mentioned at the beginning of the interview that you are a location sound mixer. What exactly does a location sound mixer do? Well, uh, in my case, um, I am kind of a one-man band, and my job is basically to capture any audio that's out in the field. So when we're doing a, a TV show like a reality show and I'm the only guy there, my job is to mic up the talent, um, make sure that I've got good, clean signal and get it to the, uh, get it to the mixer where I can record it. Um, I have a mixer recorder. And then if in fact, uh, they want me to feed a camera, then I make sure that the camera gets fed and all that. But, you know, to, to boil it down to one sentence, uh, my job is to capture the location audio as best I can to save 
the editors from having to do any post-production audio sweetening. The right. better I do my job, the less they have to do, the more money the production saves. So does the sound you get vary on the shoot? Like sometimes do you just get, you know, you mic up the talent and that's it? Do you have to get like ambient noise sometimes too if you're doing like an on-location type thing? Oh, absolutely. The, the Usually every time I do a, a different setup, um, we record what's called room tone or, or area tone. Um, to, to, so that the mixer has some, or the post-production mixer has something to kind of blend in with the sound, you know, so that he has what the ambient audio is in the area. Um, but, uh, you know, every situation, every audio situation is different. Sometimes I'm recording outside with airplanes and planes, trains, and automobiles. Other times I'm recording inside and it's a, a, a perfect location Nice sound-controlled uh, environment. Yeah, but even then, there's still sound. There's air, air conditioning. There's refrigerators. There's, you know, there's people chewing gum. You know, depending on, um, you know, what kind of microphones you have, you can... Uh, I, I'll tell you a little story. I one time was on location, and I kept hearing this tick, 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 and it was a really regular sound, so I thought a fan or something like that was on. thought there was a clock. I looked around. I couldn't find a clock. I kept looking, kept looking looking all around, and what it turned out to be was the talent's pacemaker. The talent. Oh, wow. Yeah, so the microphone that I had was placed in such a way that I was able to pick up his pacemaker. So, yeah, my job is to listen for any of those extemporaneous sounds, make sure that we eliminate whatever we can, and capture the good stuff, the dialogue, you know, any of the other noises that are going on. That's crazy. Yeah. Picked up a pacemaker. Yeah, it's a, it was a first in my life, and it's still, you know, something. I mean, I hear sound, you know, what we call ugly erps, which is basically somebody's stomach growling or, mm-hmm. you know, you'll hear a talent fart or something <laughs> like that, you know, all the time. But never had I heard that. I, that was a first for me. Is that the strangest thing, like different type of noise that you've heard on a location shoot? Well, the sound guy hears everything. You know, and as far as like out of the ordinary stuff, would you say like the pacemaker is the most out of the ordinary? I would say that the pacemaker probably is at the top of the list um, of things that I have heard and things that, you know, now I know what I'm listening for. You know, Um, every job is a new experience, but it's near as I can remember, aside from, you know, hearing some pretty crazy stuff that talent says or, you know, hearing stomach noises and stuff like that. The pacemaker absolutely is is one of the top strange stranger things. Uh, I, I will say that um, I was shooting in a haunted house once and um, we heard some pretty crazy stuff. I can imagine so. Yeah, and, and even after the fact. I mean, there's this whole science of, of collecting EVPs, uh, electronic voice phenomena, and uh, where, you know, if you're rolling, and then later you don't, you know, you don't hear it while you're recording, but you play it back. And I, there's been a couple of times when, you know, we picked up some strange things like that. But, uh, yeah, the pacemaker certainly <laughs> was one of the crazier things. Now, once the production starts, I mean, we, we were talking earlier that there's you know, obviously pre-production, production, and post-production. During production, do you just sit there and listen and make sure that 
the sound is nice and clear? Well, if I've done my job correctly, um, you know, I'm obviously monitoring levels all the time, making sure that I'm, you know, there are no planes flying overhead or, or, or ex- like I said, extra extemporaneous noise. Um, you know, I'm listening for clothing rustle. I'm listening for, um, you know, cars going by or, or backups or anything like that. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not that I'm just sitting there not doing anything. I'm obviously recording and listening and doing my job. Uh, and you know, I don't ever want them to be waiting for me. So I'm always kind of trying to stay one step ahead of things. Uh, if we're doing a narrative piece where, um, someone is actually reading dialogue or, you know, um, doing dialogue, I'm also checking to make sure that they're saying their lines properly. Um, if we're doing, you know, more often I do a lot of reality, you know, I'm just listening to make sure that, um, the talent is, is well, is enunciating well, mm-hmm. you know, saying saying what they need to say and, and being understood, you know, especially like if we're doing political stuff or things like that, you know, you want to make sure that the candidate sounds well and, you know, articulate and, you know, my job is to make sure he sounds as good as he can possibly sound. And I know, I can imagine that a lot of different types of gear are used when it comes to audio. And I've seen pictures of you on Facebook where you have the giant uh, pack that you're wearing, and then you have the the boom stand. Like what on? I guess what you'd call a typical shoot. What type of gear do you use? Well, um, I usually roll with a um, with a Sound Devices six three three mixer, which is basically a ten channel record mixer. It's six channels in. Uh, it will record up to ten channels, so six ISO channels um, of record. And then two mixed channels, uh, two left and right channels. So a total of six, six total that I can record, and I can send the stereo record out of my um, out of my mixer. I also roll with um, four uh, electrosonic SMQV transmitters, which are wireless transmitters, and uh, two SRB receivers from Electrosonic, which are wireless receivers. That, uh, and basically, each SRB re, uh, receives two channels, so I can I have uh, four channels of, of wireless microphone that I can work with. And each one of those microphones, I use the Sanken COS 11s uh, or a Tram TR50, um, depending on the kind of job that it is <clears throat> and the uh, um, you know the the location that we're in. You know, I, I want to isolate the sound. If I want a more boomy sound, I might be using the Tram TR50s. If I am if I want a more interview kind of sounding thing, right. I might use the COS11s. I mean, I guess it just depends. You know, there's there's a million ways to skin a cat in the sound, <laughs> sound world. And, and, you know, I've just, the COS11s are kind of my go-to, uh, my go-to mic. They're very easy to hide and they're very, uh, um, you know, sturdy and small and, and they do the job. And then, of course, I, I always uh, have a boom with me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Sennheiser um, ME416, um, which is a good all-purpose, um, you know, boom mic. You can hammer nails with that thing. You know, it requires phantom power, but uh, 
you know, it's it's still a great microphone. It's good to have a sturdy microphone. Yeah, it's not the it's not the best, it's not the worst. It's a it's a very good microphone. I found the type of work that I do, you know, doesn't require me to to spend three thousand dollars on a on a good Chef Seamit microphone, you know, which could be a lot of money. Right. Know. Um I've I've you know, kind of made a habit of not buying anything that I can't pay cash for, you know, or I don't have a job coming up that's going to pay for I Right. So, and then, you know, I have all the other accoutrements. I wear a, wear a, uh, I have my mixer in a, in a bag, a Orca bag. Um, and, uh, they have a, a harness that goes with it. So I can basically be a one man band and have my mixer sitting right on my chest and mic everybody up and, and be my own boom operator. Um, I don't, uh, do a lot of high end feature film stuff, so I don't have the luxury of having extra people, uh, with me. Um, most of the film stuff that I do is, you know, more short films and, and that kind of stuff. And they have no budget for that kind of stuff. And then the reality stuff again is, is very budget conscious. So it's just, pretty much me you know whenever and wherever possible i'll try and get a boom operator to work with me so i don't have to have to chase a boom or i'll have my favorite uh boom operator which is a guy called stan d Um, stan d yeah s-t-a-n-d stand (laughs) (laughs) i like it and uh and you know when we're doing sit down interviews you know i'll just hang the the boom pole off the c-stand and and uh, a boom holder and and right roll that way how heavy is that bag that you wear well i weighed myself before and after um and with with my most recent configuration i understand that i had a much heavier mixer and and different microphones and all that stuff my most recent configuration i'm at about 26 to 28 pounds uh, depending on how many batteries I I carry, because I they're all powered by uh, um, NP1 batteries, which are the long 12 volt batteries. Um, plus, I'm always carrying extra AA batteries for the microphones, and you know there's a there's a lot of extra little things that I'm carrying so that I don't get stuck out you know on the beach somewhere and and they have to wait for sound while somebody goes back to my car and gets batteries or something like that. So. 25 to 28 pounds. Sounds like a good workout. Well, it doesn't seem like a lot until you're walking down on the beach or, you know, it's a really hot... Well, wearing it for a while, I I can imagine, will wear on you. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I wouldn't exactly call myself a skinny guy or the most fit guy, but, um, you know, it's a workout and, you know, I haven't died yet. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I do my very best to conserve energy, uh, conservation and motion is everything in my job, you know. Uh, I totally understand. Yeah. Now, going back a little bit to pre-production, do you have like a, a routine you go by? Like when you get to the location, is there always like a certain thing that you do first and then you do your other uh, like pre-production jobs? Do you have like a set routine that you do? My pre-production starts the minute I get the first call from the producer. And the producer says, I want to want to hire you. You know, I'm asking a bunch of questions. You know, I always ask if I can be on location for the location scout. Um, nine times out of ten, you know, they don't want to pay the extra day rate for that. Um, uh, so, you know, I have to kind of do things on the fly. 
Uh, I always ask them what kind of microphone they're using. I always ask them if they need time code. I always ask them if they, you know, if I can tether directly to the camera. Um, excuse me, I said microphone. I meant what kind of camera they are using. I use the microphones. But uh, I always ask about what kind of camera they're using. I ask about uh, whether I can tether to the camera. I ask... Uh, you know, do they need IFBs uh, or any kind of listening devices for the producers, directors, anybody else, you know, the um, uh, ad agencies or anybody in Video Village? I mean, then I quiz them about who, you know, what we're doing, where we're doing it, all those kind of things. Try and gather as much intelligence as I can before the before I even get to the location. And then the night before... You know, I'm basically um, loading up. I would like to think that I will have gotten a call sheet early in, in early enough in the evening that I'm able to preset the time code on my mixer and my um, and my slate and and also you know preload all my my information, sound report information into the mixer, you know, about the job and, and maybe who's on camera and make some decisions on who's going to be on what channel and, and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, when I get to cam when I get to the location before I roll anything to where we're going to shoot, I, I go walk around the location and I just listen, you know, and I'm listening for, anything and everything, you know, I'm listening for air conditioners, refrigerators, compressors, you know, lawn maintenance equipment, uh, cars, airplanes, trains, automobiles, you know, everything. And, and, you know, trying to decide what we're going to do. And very often a producer will say, well, this is the location we're going to be in. And I will say, well, I have this problem here. You know, I can hear this fan. I can hear this air conditioner. I can hear this. And, they will either say, well, let's find another place, or they'll say, what, do you, what can you do to eliminate it? You know? And so we'll unplug a refrigerator and, and uh, you know, turn off the AC, do anything I can to eliminate those noises. You know? But I'm a, a little different in that, um, than a lot of guys in that I basically just use what's given to me. If the director has a vision and this is the place that he wants to shoot, then it's my job to capture the best sound I can in the location that he's in and deal with those extra problems. Absolutely. Uh, what file format do you record your, uh, your sounds in? Is it like a WAV file uh, or what specific type of format do you record so to? The, so the Sound Devices 633 records several different types of formats and it records on two different types of media. It records on a CF card. And it also records on little SD card. Mm -hmm. So on the CF card, I record um, poly wave files, which are basically um, you have a choice of, of mono wave files or poly wave files. Now, the, the difference being a mono wave file is basically every single channel as an individual um, wave file itself so channel one channel two channel three then your mixed mixed channels are all an individual channel that that is a single wave you know that are individual wave files so you know from my mixer i could have up to 10 different wave files per um channel which is a lot of media to handle um i prefer and typically unless 
asked otherwise, will record polywave files, which basically takes all those individual channels and packs them into one single wave file at 48K. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, what is it, uh, 16-bit, 48K, and packs them all into one file so that when the editor gets the file and he throws that one single wave file up on his... Um, timeline in his editor, whether he's an Avid editor or a Final Cut or a Premiere editor or whatever, it will open up as, depending on how many channels I've activated, up to as many as 10 different individual uh, WAV files. Wow. But it's all packed into one. And then on my SD card, I typically record uh, MP3 files, um, stereo MP3s, Mostly for backup, but but a lot of times just for um, transcription. Uh, I do a, a lot of docu reality stuff where they're doing interviews of people, and they need to have the the document the interviews transcribed so they know what's been said. And uh, as far as post production goes, is it you just give the files to the editor? Yeah, my goal in life is to never hear from anybody after the shoot. Um, so no news is good news. If if I don't hear from the editor, if I don't hear from the producer, um, uh, then I've done my job right. They have they don't have any problems with the sound. Um, at the end of the day, I will hand over uh, my CF card, my SD card to the um, DIT guy who is is then going to transfer all the footage to his hard drive, um, and then I'll get the the card back from him, uh, cards back from him, and then when I get home, I will double up on the on the on the backup. I'll put put one version on my hard drives, and then I'll put another version. Um, in the cloud, usually up on Dropbox, and then I make sure the client knows where they can get them so that, uh, you know, if for some reason they get lost in transit or something, there's the, I, I believe highly in redundancy, you know, so there's there's at least three or four versions of the files in separate places in my custody and then however many the, the client has done. Um, you know, knock wood, I, or simulated wood, whatever this is, I have yet to have a client call me up and say, you've, you've messed up and we're ha- we have a real problem with the audio. Usually the calls that I get from the client is, Hey, uh, we can't find where we put your files on our computer. Can you send them over to us or something like that? So, um, you know. I I'm, I may get an occasional, you know, snarky comment, especially if it's somebody that that I've worked with a lot. And snarky may be a rough word, but I make it the occasional uh, comment. Hey, you know, we had a little clothing wrestle on the last one. Um, you know, try and be careful about that. You know, but sometimes those things are just unavoidable. You know, um, but but for the most part, I can't think of of a time since I've been doing audio full-time exclusively um, that I've ever had anybody tell me, you know, there was an audio problem. Now, back when I was producing and audio was, in, was you know, somebody else's responsibility, I can think of one very bad 
situation that cost the production company a, a lot of money, uh, cost me a lot of money because there was some audio problems. And, you know, I was, you know, trying to be producer, cameraman, director, all that, and, you know, was not paying attention. And, and to me, that is the one of the number one reasons I always recommend to people um, who are doing production to hire a sound guy. Because sound is 50% of your production. Mm -hmm. And if you have spent a lot of money and got a lot of people out there and the sound gets screwed up um, because you decided you didn't want to hire a sound guy and you're doing 15 other things and and you recorded your sound way too low or, you know, you had something that you just weren't paying attention to at the time, you know, that's, that's on you. But if you hire a sound guy... You know, to do it, his job, his sole job, is to be listening for that sound. No, that's that's exactly the way you should handle it. Um, in the notes you sent me, there was a little something that caught my attention that I wanted to ask you about. You said that there are two types of sound guys. What are the two types of sound guys? In my experience, I've 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 met two kinds of sound guys. There's the very um, what's the word I'm looking for? The antisocial sound guy, I guess he is. He is the, the sound guy who is a highly technical individual who, you know, his he's always got the best sound gear available. He's got the, uh, everything, the latest and greatest. He's always fixing something, you know, he can solder, he can, you know, he can, uh, you know, build a, uh, uh, a mixer out of bubble gum and gaffer tape, you know, um, and and you know his he's all about the technical side of things, um, and and he gets great sound and all that, but he's not very well liked in the crew, or I wouldn't say that he's not liked, but you know keeps to himself for the he, most part. He keeps to himself. He's kind of antisocial, and then there there's the other kind of sound guy who who's all about doing the best job he can, but also helping the production in any way that he can, you know, and, and I like to think of myself in the latter. I'm, you know, I'm a pretty personable guy. Um, I can, you know, tell a dirty joke with the best of them and, uh, talent seems to like me and I'm respectful to clients and talent and agencies and stuff like that. You know, plus I have, good technical skills and can solve problems, you know, on the fly. Um, but I don't like to bring a lot of stress to the right. shoot. And I think what happens is the former guys, the antisocial guys, um, they tend to, you know, be very, very good at what they do. And I'm not saying that there's either one is good, but for some people that can be very, very stressful because they're, going over the top, worrying about every little teeny tiny sound that could possibly become a problem. And, you know, sometimes we just don't have the luxury of, of getting rid of an AC. You know, it's a 100-degree day out there, and it's 98 degrees inside with the air conditioning on. Imagine what it's going to be like with it off, you know. And so... You know, I roll a little bit better with the punches, um, and I think that that served me well in in the game. I think producers like having me around because you know I don't create extra stress for them. I, you know, I get the job done, 
and you know everybody's happy and you know we're fun you know well, that's what you want to do when you're when you're on a long shoot where you're shooting for 12 13 hours you want to have a relaxed atmosphere you don't want to be sitting there on pins and needles and worrying about you know what if this goes wrong you just like you said, roll with the punches and yeah, you it know, makes it more fun that way. There are guys, like I said, who, you know, are absolutely concerned all the time and they're, they're a ball of stress. You know, they're concerned about every little buzz and every little pop and every little click. But at the end of the day, um, you know, they've got ulcers and, and, you know, they've created a lot of extra stress for, for the people around them. And, you know, when everybody else is on lunch, they're so busy, chasing you know down these these little problems well if you've done your pre-production and you've you've checked your gear out before you even get to the set those are things you don't have to worry about you can worry about you know making sure that your mic placement is right and that you know getting to know people because you know part of part of our job a big part of my job is networking and Mm -hmm. getting to know people on the set and if you're that sound guy that that uh nobody wants to talk to because he's a bit of a, you know, for lack of a better word, asshole. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you don't get to meet people. And and a lot of my jobs come from referrals, you know. Um, Hey, I work with this guy on, you know, this guy, Steve Baker, on on this job here. If you're going to be in North Florida, please, please give him a call. And, And I can't count the number of times that's how the phone calls go. Hey, I heard from... John Smith, he said, you're a great guy to work with and fun and, you know, low stress. So I prefer to be the latter, you know. It's like we mentioned before, the industry, whether it be sound or just production industry in general, is a lot smaller than you might think it is. So word travels very quickly on how your attitude is. Yeah, and and listen, I'm not saying that these other guys, these these antisocial guys, right, as right, I right. call them, are any better or any worse. In fact, you know, to a, to a certain degree, it's good to be that way. It's good to be very meticulous about your job. But I don't think that you have to bring that level of stress to the set with you. It, it's just... It's, Leave the stress and drama at home. Well, it's 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 you know it's it's uh, unproductive. It doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't help. You know when doing production, you know is a stressful job. Sometimes we work long hours. We you know we sometimes run across people on the set that are hard to work with, and and you know we don't need more than we have to. It's it's you know producers and directors are are stressing. <laughs> <laughs> None of the ones that I've worked with. <laughs> <laughs> now, something else that uh, that I wanted to ask you, how exactly do you get jobs as a location sound mixer? Because, you know, getting freelance is not like a, a steady job where you just go in an office, clock in, clock out. How, how exactly do you get your uh, your gigs? I would say that 50% of the work that I do is doesn't happen on the set. 50% of the work that I do is about networking. It's about generating, you know, contacts. It's about meeting people. It's about, um, you know, going to sound guy forums, going to events where there are other sound guys or producers. It's about making phone calls. Um, I 
make a lot of phone calls in a week, you know, calling producers, reminding them that I'm there, you know, letting them know that I will will work as a local in Atlanta or Orlando or, you know, Louisiana, wherever, you know, just always ABC, always be calling, you know, um, and I always be calling people up on the phone just, you know, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but I worked with you on House Hunters a couple of months ago and and just checking in to see if you need anything. Um, I also uh, belong to uh, several different staffing agencies, Staff Me Up, um, ProductionHub.com, uh, Mandy.com, um, Crew Call. Uh, I, I am on several different lists for ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, you know, all the major networks so that, when, you know, God forbid there's a disaster or some big news story that happens, you know, and they're looking for a sound guy to go out with a camera guy, I'm usually one of the guys that they'll call. Um, you know, so there's there's always something. But, it's, but, you know, as I said before, a lot of my work comes from referrals. It comes from, you know, hey, Steve, I, I got your name from you know, Jenny, who worked on, you know, Mysteries at the Museum with you, and she said you were really good and an easy guy to work with. Would would you be available for this day, you know? And so so that works out really, you know, that I think that's why being a good guy on the set and being prepared and, oh, yeah, doing really good sound also also helps. That, I was just about to go to say that it goes right back to the whole having a good attitude, being a good worker, and the whole networking thing because that's it's kind of what I do with getting interviews because I'll interview or I'll email, call different agents, be like, you know, I've interviewed so and so, and I've even used some as as referrals, so I, I know exactly how that is. Yeah, and I think that 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 and. Um, you know, in this day and age, also having being willing to um, work with the producers rate wise, you know, uh, on on uh, what you know, the, everybody's everybody's got a tight budget. No matter, you know, they're always looking for you to to cut your rate some way. You know, I've set set the bar for the the services that I provide based on the equipment that I'm bringing to the table, based on the experience that I'm bringing to the table, you know, the jobs that I've done and all that kind of stuff. Inevitably, the producer will say, well, we really don't have that kind of money. Would you be willing to do it for this? And then, you know, that's when I have to make the decision based on how hungry I am, what other jobs I have going on, you know. This time of year, uh, during hiatus season, um, if somebody calls me up, I'm I'm likely to work for half of my day rate just to have a job because right. nothing's going on. You know, the middle of summer when things are going crazy, you know, I'm I'm kind of kind of stick to my guns. Um, but for the most part, it you know, and and again, that goes back to being the kind of easy to work with guy. If if a producer calls me up and and says, "Hey, you know, I don't have this," I, I can reflect back to my days as a producer and recognize, "Hey, this guy is up against it budget-wise," and I will will help him out. 
but then he'll call me again the next time and it I can't tell you the number of times that it's that it's happened you know hey I remember you know the last time you worked for me you worked for you know uh, a couple hundred dollars off your normal day rate you know but now I've got a little more money so I'm I'm certainly willing to hire you for for that so it's all about about being easy and also bringing other people to the table producer wants you know help doing mm-hmm. his job and I've been doing this down here in, on the Emerald Coast for 10 15 years now and I'd like to think that I know most everybody who's got the skills and uh so it you know with one phone call a producer can call a guy like me and I usually have the hookup for him for lighting you know for makeup for craft services for PA for you know, a a field producer, anybody and everybody that he wants. And I always make that part of my initial ask is, hey, what can I do to make your job easier? What can I do to make your production experience here on the Emerald Coast easier? It is crazy how it all goes back to that one thing of having the good attitude because from there it goes to getting other jobs, you getting other people jobs. It is crazy how it all just blossoms yeah it's like, it, it's like a flower it, it, you know attitude is everything in this thing and if you're a you're a, a a hard person to work with or no fun to have on the set you know um it it reflects and everybody knows it and you know bad news good news travels fast bad news travels even faster you know mm-hmm. and so you know um i i i can say without reservation in the local film community, I may have a little bit of a reputation of being the crotchety old man who knows it all and, and has been there and done that. And I think that to that end, it, uh, it works against me a little bit because the, the local guys who are, who are doing, you know, their own independent films, you know, feel a little bit intimidated by that. But when you, when business comes in from outside, what they want is they want experienced guys. They don't right. want guys that know. They want more. people who know what they're doing. They don't care if somebody knows more than you. All they care about is, can you do the job that you're hired to do? And, you know, and then, you know, if I bring a little something extra to the table, very often, you know, um, the union guys are going to kill me for this, but, but, I will often step outside of my uh, department, you know, and make suggestions, you know, when when solicited. You know, if somebody says something, hey, what do you think? You know, I'm very quick to say, well, you know, I might have laid it a little differently, and here's what I would have done. You know, I do my very best not to step on anybody's toes in that respect. But, you know, if you're working on a small job, you know, where you've got one cameraman, maybe a grip or a PA, and a sound guy and a director, you know, the um, the camera guy who's doing the lighting will really appreciate it if you're, you as a sound guy are willing to, you know, move a C-stand or, or help him adjust a light that makes a, that goes a long way. And that's the difference between those, you know, those persnickety sound guys and, and the other guys. A lot of those guys won't step outside of their department. Hey, I've been hired to be a sound guy, and I'm only a sound guy, and I'm not going to work outside of my department. Well, you know, my job is to help the production get done 
you know. You want and, it to be the best you can because you're a part of it. Yeah, yeah. I want to be. I want to look at that thing and say I'm proud to be a part of that. I'm glad my name's in the credits. Yeah, for sure. So now something, and I will admit I don't have that much experience or knowledge on something that you said. Uh, you said union guys are going to kill me when I say this. Is that something like if you're part of a union, you just do your job that you're assigned? Yeah, in in Florida and in Georgia, um, Alabama, we're all in right to work states. Okay, um, so anybody can do anything. It's right to work state, but but a lot of places like L.A. Uh, or New York, where the unions are prevalent, you know, you get on a movie set in L.A as a sound guy and anybody in the grip union or grip electric union sees you moving a C stand, you know, they'll, they'll cut your balls off. And so you have to kind of know where you are and who you're dealing with. Even down here, there are some guys um, that I work with who really don't like, you know, you getting kind of in their department, you know, the camera department, especially, I think those guys are very protective of their jobs, you know, and that's, that's okay. I'm protective of my job too, you know, and so I, I get it. Um, I think what you have to do is when you get on the set, you have to assess the situation and you have mm-hmm. to ask questions, you know, Hey, you know, do you, do you mind if, if I make a suggestion, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, always do it, do it in a, in a respectful way and, mm-hmm. and just make sure that people know. But, you know, if you're working on a union job and you're hired to be the sound guy, then you're just a sound guy, you know, um, and nothing else. And for me, that feels very counterproductive in a lot of ways, because if I'm just the sound guy and I'm sitting there watching this poor PA who's you know, or, or grip who's loading up the truck all by himself and I'm done and I'm just waiting for them to call rap or release everybody. I kind of feel bad for those guys, you know? And so I try and help out whenever and wherever I can. I mean, you know, I have my bad days just like anybody else and, you know, want to get the heck out of there. But the sooner we all get done, the sooner we all can go home and have a beer or whatever it is that we're, you know, doing when they call rap. I get that you should be protective of your job because I mean, it's, it's your livelihood, but like you said, and I I totally agree with it. If when you go to a set, it should always be a learning experience and say I'm a camera op and you're the sound guy, you might have a better suggestion than what I was going to do. So I think that you should go onto a set with an open mind and just want to absorb all the information you can because if you're not learning new things, to me, there's really no point in continuing. Absolutely. But I also think that you need to be very um, aware right, right. of what's going on on the set. Yeah, and, yeah, for sure. And who's on the set. I mean, you know, uh, people will look at, at you, you know, sideways if you are in the sound department and you're asking lots of questions about the camera department, um, not helping out, you know. They get, like I said, they get very protective of their departments, you know. And I, and I understand that, yeah. Um, you know, uh, but, you know, down here on the Emerald Coast, I think we have a significantly more collaborative ev- uh, attitude yes. towards production than they do in a lot of other places, Atlanta, um, 
know, Louisiana, because they have a little more of a unionized attitude. But I think down here, because there's so few of us professionals working in the industry, what happens is, is that we're all trying to help each other. And when we all get together to make our little short films or, or whatever, you know, we all just want it to be the best that we can. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're kind of used to, um, you know, working outside of our department and doing that. But I will tell you that, um, you, as I said before, you have to be very, very aware. Mm -hmm. I have seen that attitude, um, and, and that kind of, you know, being collaborative, wanting to be too helpful, you know, bite people in the ass. Hell, it's bit me in the ass a couple of times, you know. Um, I've, I've gotten some very stern, you know, looks and, and, and people kind of looking at me cross-eyed because I'm, you know, trying to help too much or, you know. I mean, some, there's, there are guys, um, you know, I, I see gaffers, particularly union guys who come down here and work, you know, in this right-to-work state. And they will light a scene, but they'll go out of their way to justify their job by, you know, using every light in in the truck, you know, and setting everything up. And, and sometimes I look out of it, the producer in me kind of comes out and I look at it and I say, well, are these guys just trying to run up the hours, you know, and, and slip us into overtime? Or are these guys trying to justify their job? Or are they just, you know... You know, are are they really doing the job? You know, I, I would say nine times out of ten, they're doing the job and they're lighting a scene and it looks really good. But, you know, there's a very small percentage of the guys who are just looking to... So always be aware is yeah. what you're trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. You just Be aware of your environment. Be aware of, of what's going on um, around you, who's doing what, you know. Try not to step on anybody's toes in anybody's department, Um you know, just as you wouldn't want someone to come in and start turning knobs on your mixer, you know, I or I wouldn't, you know. I, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I but, but it doesn't hurt to ask questions, and especially when you're young in the industry, because that's how you learn and that's how you, you, you know, grow. Um, but, you know, one thing that, that I get asked a lot is how do I get into the film business or how do I get into the production business? And, if I could say one thing to, you know, film students is to specialize and to find out what it is that you're good at and what it is that you like to do, figure out how to get paid to do it, you know, learn how to do it first, figure out how to get paid to do it, and you'll never work a day again in your life, you know. Um, it's the kids that come out of film school and say, I can do it all. You know, I can be, be your director, I can light, I can direct, I can produce, I can be your sound guy. And, you know, and then they arrive on set with a boom and a zoom, you know, because they've been hired as a sound man. And they have no idea how to set a microphone so that you don't get clothing rub. You know, those are the guys that make us all look bad, you know. Um, so... You know, I always tell them to specialize and never overstate your resume to somebody. If you, you know, if you get hired to be a sound guy, make sure that you, you know, um, know damn well what you're doing. Because not only does it reflect poorly on you, but it reflects poorly on all of us on the Emerald Coast. Because 
they're not going to remember producers who come in from out of town are not going to remember that, you know, they had one bad sound guy. They're going to remember that they had a bad experience, a bad production experience here on the Emerald coast. And our job, my job is to help these guys have the best production experience that they possibly can here on the Emerald coast. So that they'll come back, push money into the economy, put money in my pocket, you know, put us all on the map so that we can we can work more. Yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of the Emerald Coast, when did you move to Florida and why did you move here? So around 2001, my dad, who lived here in Crestfield, um, was diagnosed with cancer. At the same time, my mother, who lived down in, Orle- in Orlando, in a little town called Oviedo, was diagnosed with lung cancer. So both of them were, were uh, dealing with lung cancer. So I was making trips back and forth from Cape Cod to, you know, Pensacola or to Orlando to check up on them and see how they were doing and see how things were going on. And, uh, you know, at the same time, I was watching things that were happening. The production world was changing, and they were laying people off right and left at my company. Um, I survived one layoff by taking a job, um, you know, and basically taking on a management job that was an hour and a half commute to my every one way every day. Um, and then, you know, uh, in, I, I want to say it was November of 2002, my wife and I, I had been making trips pretty much on a monthly basis down to Florida to, to check up on my parents. My wife and I, God bless her. We had this talk about, hey, you know, maybe maybe we should move to Florida. You need to be close to your folks. They're they're both very very sick, and mm-hmm. you know it'll only be a few months, but but you need to be there with them. And of course, we had a house. Kids are you know by this time they have grown up. They both moved away. They're both you know my son's in in college, and my daughter is. has got a baby and she's in the army national guard and i said well you know let's see if we can sell the house and luckily we were we put the house up literally we put the house on the market november 28th um i got my first offer on the house on i want to say december 1st we closed on that house somewhere around december 17th and i said Oh shit, I guess we're going to move. <laughs> <laughs> so we had made another trip down to Orlando, or I mean, excuse me, down here to Destin and we decided we were going to be here um with my dad um because my I have a brother, a couple of brothers who were down in Orlando with my mom. So we found a place, moved down here, and then it was okay. Now I got to find a job. And uh I I I looked around. The first thing I did was get hooked up with the local film commissioner, mm-hmm. um, the, at the, who at the time was not Gail Morgan. Um, uh, golly, Wendy. I can't remember Wendy's last name. But anyway, she was local, Oklahoma County Film Commissioner. Um, Gail, or excuse me, uh, Julie Gordon w- was the uh, Bay County Film Commissioner, and Tom Roush was the Pensacola Film Commissioner. Ironically, 
It's another weird six degrees of separation. Julie Gordon had also worked on several shows with my brother. Um, Julie Gordon uh, was a roller derby girl, and she was she's big kind of an Amazon type mm-hmm. girl, and she uh, she had a career. Uh, doing a lot of different things, and she had worked worked with my brother on a couple of motorcycle shows and things like that. So, so Julie took a liking to me right away, <laughs> and so, so, and then I hooked up with this organization called the Production Services Association of Northwest Florida, which was kind of fledgling at the time. It was just a group of guys like you and I who get together once a month and commiserate on on you know who's doing what. Who's got work? Share it with me. You know, if you need me, I'm available, that kind of stuff. And uh, I ultimately met up with a guy named R.J. Murdoch, um, who was running, at the time, he was running a show called Tourist TV, um, which was basically a Fort Walton Beach's answer to Beach TV. Mm-hmm. Um, he was doing, it on, doing basically the same thing that Beach TV was doing, but on a much smaller level. RJ hired me as a consultant to help him kind of move his business because he didn't know a lot about what he was doing. And I had just gotten done, you know, one of the many things that I was doing was co-producing a show called the Cape Cod Guide to Visit the Cape Cod Video Visitors Guide the Video Visitors Guide to Cape Cod and the Islands. So basically I took that whole model and a lot of the script I and retooled the whole thing and helped RJ kind of build Beach TV. Um, and uh, he he did very, very well with it. Um, I, I'm very proud of the work that I did with him and more proud of the friendship that I built with RJ. He's a good guy and, you know, he has has come a long way in what he's doing. And through through the PSA, I've met a lot of really interesting guys and, you know, just started started working, I mean, almost immediately. I was more experienced than a lot of the guys around the area. So when a, the film commissioner was looking for someone to fill a job as a camera operator over in spring break, you know, for MTV, I would get a call, you know, or if they needed a grip or a PA or something like that, I would get a call. So, you know, and I ba- just basically was able to to start working almost immediately. I, I was able to... to get a few local clients, um, was, you know, I hustled is what I did. I, I made phone calls. I got set up with a couple of resort, um, organizations and was doing videos for them. Um, I started doing local TV commercials, um, for, you know, I got set up with the local ad fed and got to meet people, you know, did the networking thing and just, just started meeting people. And I was doing this full-service production thing. I had SB Video Productions, and I was doing Stem CERN production and, and did everything from TV commercials to full-fledged multi-camera shoots of, of you know, MMA fights. And, and uh, we were doing – we did things like uh, uh, multi-camera shoot for uh, infomercial for a company called Master Prostate. You know, mm-hmm. crazy, crazy stuff that you wouldn't think would be going on. And then at the same time, I was putting myself out there as a crewman working on independent films for guys, you know, doing stuff for free, just banking favors here and there, you know, just that kind of stuff. So 
uh, over the years, uh, you know, as production gear got less expensive, more people started buying into the business and, and the, I kept seeing a, uh, a really big hole that I would get hired more and more just as a sound guy, you know, and, and realize that, you know, we had lots of guys who said they were camera operators or, you know, that were, were lighting guys and stuff like that, but nobody wanted or knew how to do sound. So, you know, I just basically went from full service production to saying, okay, there's a million guys who have bought these cheap mini TV or HTV cameras and have Final Cut editing or Premiere Pro or whatever, you know, that are willing to undercut me because I, you know, my average spot cost was $2,500 to $5,000. These guys would do the same spot for 600 bucks. How can I compete with that? Yeah, exactly. And so I basically said, I'm a little tired of fighting that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, you know, I said, I'm going to specialize and decided sound was where my specialty was going to be. And, Sold all my camera gear, bought up what I think is one of the best, if not the best sound package, you know, from Tallahassee to Biloxi and uh, just hung out a shingle and said I was the sound guy here and have been working pretty steady, you know, since then. All the me- In the meantime, you know, of course, I was dealing with my dad and him being very sick and my mom being very sick. And, you know, the plan was that they were going to pass away in two or three months. And Karen and I were going to go back to Massachusetts and I was going to get a job up there again. Well, you know, knock wood, God bless them. You know, they both hung on for six, seven years, you know, but we kept saying, well, we're not going to buy a house this year. We're not going to buy a house this year, you know? And, and meanwhile, I'm building up my, um, production business and she's uh you know getting she finally gets a job that she's very comfortable in and you know we decide well maybe we ought to stick around a while you know so i mean when when my father my mother passed and then my father passed um i had just had a contract i was working full-time doing walmart commercials every other week and I was also working on a show called uh, Live in Vern's House with Vernon Yip for HGTV um, and doing a bunch of house hunter stuff. So, you know, I was I had a lot of stuff going and it was kind of hard for me to walk away from all that stuff. Right. You know, so. I mean, I, I've, I looked on your uh, Facebook page and you've done some really cool things. I know you mentioned house hunters whenever uh, we talked on the phone. And I saw that you got to meet uh, Alfred Morris, who plays for the Washington Redskins, who's from here. Yeah, we, um, you know, as a freelance, you get called out um, to do a job. And basically what happens is you get a call from a production coordinator and they say, hey, we need you to work in Pensacola. And, um, you know, we need you here on this day. And can, can you do it? This is the gear we need and all that. I said, yeah, sure. And, and. Nine times out of ten, you know, I I wouldn't even ask what I'm doing because I'm just happy to do the work. And I, I didn't ask about that. Turned out that was an NFL profile on Alfred Morris. He had just been drafted. 
And, you know, he's he's a really genuine, good, you know, local boy does good. And so mm-hmm. we got to hang out with him for, you know, for the day and, and uh, learned, uh, learned a lot about him and his family and have done two or three things with him since he's come back and several things with the NFL, um, you know, a lot of stuff out at, at Andrews Institute uh, mm-hmm. with Barkevius Mingo and and uh, RG3 and, you know, a lot of really big names, some of which I can tell you about, some I can't, you know, because of non-disclosure agreements. But, yeah, that was that was very, very cool. That's kind of the cool thing about freelance is that, you know, each job is unique in its own way. Yeah, yeah, every job is unique. And I learned um, I learned kind of early on to, to ask about the jobs. Because when I was hungry, I didn't care what the job was. I would just take. I just wanted it. work. I just wanted work. But after a while, I started realizing, hey, I'm getting booked on these things. I mean, I'll tell you. Um, and the, I learned my lesson on two jobs, and they were over in Panama City, and one of them was with Girls Gone, Gone Wild, um, and and they asked me to work. I got hired to do some stuff during the daytime with them. And I, when I got on set and I realized what it was, I wasn't real excited about being there, but I didn't want to be unprofessional about it. And the way that they worked at the time was that they, um, they, you know, during the daytime they did their scouting, find find the girls. And then at the evening, that's when all the bad stuff happens. Well, I worked a full day. Then they asked me if I wanted to stay, that night, I said, no, thank you. I'm I'm done for the day. And it just so happens that that was the night that they got arrested and all the big problems over in Panama City happened. So I feel like I really, really dodged a, oh, absolutely. a big bullet there. So I've always asked about the jobs and, you know, what am I doing? Who am I working with? You know, um, you know and so I've, I've gotten to work with some really interesting people, some people I don't necessarily agree with, you know, politically, but still think they're great people. I, I tell you, I've worked with Mike Huckabee several times. Now, he and I are about as far away from each other politically as we can possibly be, but I have to tell you, he's one of the nicest, most genuine people I've ever met in my life. And, you know, as many times as I've worked with him, he always remembers my name, and he is always very pleasant to me, you know? And so, you know, sometimes you just tune out what you're recording mm-hmm. and just look at the levels and make sure that everything is good is going to tape and, you know, try not to listen to yeah. the stuff that will make you angry. You know, um, I had told you another story that really solidified me, um, having asking about my jobs. I was hoping you'd tell this story. Okay. <laughs> so, I got hired by this production company, um, and the name of the the show, which I don't think I've ever seen anywhere, was called Beach Party Challenge or something like that. And I don't know who the I, I couldn't for the life of me tell you the name of the producer uh, or the name of the production company or whatever happened to it. But I can tell you that the the theme of the show was basically they were trying to be a tamer girls gone wild um if there is such a thing and and this was during spring break and it was 7 days of work to give you an idea of of kind of what went on they would do these really crazy games 
in the clubs. We were we were kind of stationed at Club La Vila. And they would play games like find something called Find the Fish, where basically they took a paper cutout of a goldfish or something like that and put it down some guy's pants and then told these girls that they had to go out, that there was a goldfish worth money out on the dance floor somewhere, go find it, and then the camera crew would, would chase them. Um, and then on that same shoot, we were doing uh, a, uh, a catalog shoot, basically videotaping a photography shoot of a bikini shoot. Mm-hmm. So pretty girls in, in bikini at spring break, writhing around in the ocean. And there's, uh, you know, there's a, a crew of maybe five or six of us plus a photography crew. So we're kind of there by ourselves. And, and you know, we started drawing attention. And I was a sound guy, and I had my boom pole fully extended, probably 12 13 feet out. So I had a lot of weight on. Plus I was wearing a, uh, a pack in the front. And as we're shooting this thing, the crowd starts kind of closing in on us. And we didn't have but one or two guys that were, that were uh, doing security for us. One of this guy was guys was a mountain of a man. And uh, so, so this crowd is kind of closing in on us and they're getting rowdier and rowdier. And this girl's trying to, do her job, you know, as a model and mm-hmm. the guys trying to shoot the pictures and we're all just trying to do our jobs to the point where basically the crowd is right on top of us and I'm standing there with my boom pole fully extended and the next thing you know, a full pitcher of beer got poured down my back. Oh, well, no. you know, I turned, turned around to see who it was and it was this drunk punk. And I just accidentally took the butt of my boom pole and whacked him in the head with it (laughs) as hard as I could. And uh, the security guy saw the whole thing happen. And so he quickly came over and he grabbed uh, grabbed the kid that did this, picked him up, walked him over to the water, threw him in the water. And that crowd dispersed. It just opened up like... The that parting of the Red Seas. And, and, you know, so I didn't know what, what I was getting into with that job. But what I did know is that I had negotiated for payment in cash at RAP. Now, this was a seven-day job. Mm-hmm. It was, um, um, at the time, it was not a lot of money, but it was it was fairly good money. I think with overtime and everything like that, by the by the end of the day, by the time we wrapped at two o'clock on a Sunday morning, I was owed somewhere to the tune of three to four thousand dollars. And so I said to the guy, and you need to understand that our production home base, our production trailer, was a moving RV. And inside the RV was kind of where the producer was living. Mm-hmm. The producer had a habit, let's just say. He he enjoyed the the white powder a little bit, you know. He also enjoyed the company of underage girls and he enjoyed having a lot of alcohol in the in the truck. Now I never stepped foot in the truck in the R V, but I was I was there and everybody knew what was going on. So it's two thirty on a Sunday morning. I'm tired. I want to get paid. I said to the guy, look, I'm done. I ain't coming back. I need to get paid now. He said, fine. 
let's go. I'll go to my bank. You know, let's go go to the bank down here and, and I'll get your money. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, we go to a bank in the middle of Panama City. And unfortunately, this bank will not give him any more than three or $400 per withdrawal. Right. So by the time he got done withdrawing, we, it took us probably 45 minutes to get all the money that, it, that he needed to. And he's sitting there counting all this money out to me. And, you know, it's 3 o'clock in the morning and there's a party going on in the van. And, you know, he's... You know, sniffing it up, and and his eyes are red, oh and God. and I'm tired, and and all this stuff, and and I, uh, uh, I took my money, shook his hand, and said thank you very much, and I I said to myself right then and there, I will never take a job without asking, you know what it is. On the way home, I had this epiphany, and the epiphany was how lucky I was that at two thirty in the morning, you know in the middle of Panama City, in the middle of spring break, the police didn't show up when this guy was counting out all this money to me because he would have obviously been caught. They obviously would have searched the van and found whatever illicit substances was in there, whatever young ladies were in there, and I would have been connected to it in one way or another. And, you know, it was at that point that I said, I, I, you know, I've just got to be very, very, very careful. And so I always, always ask, you know, what, what's the job? You know, how much does it pay? What kind of equipment do you need? Who am I working with? You know, for every one of those, you know, I have other great jobs. I got to tell you, I don't get starstruck very much. But in the, in my career since I've been down here, there are two times when I've been totally starstruck. The first time was when I got to do, we were doing a an informational video for a company up in Bonifay, Florida, who is working with Jim Fowler. Now, I don't know if you know who Jim Fowler is. You're probably a little too young. But in my day, when I was a kid, there was a show that came on on Sunday nights called Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And it was uh, these two guys, Jim Fowler and Marlon Perkins, and they would go out and they'd, you know, run around the countryside chasing boas, you know, boa constrictors and lions and tigers and bears and stuff like that. So somehow I got to meet Jim Fowler on this thing, and I was just so starstruck by that. And then just recently um, I did a show called uh, – Bill Nye's global warming meltdown, and I got to meet Bill Nye, the science guy. That's someone who I want to meet one day. Yeah, he is everything you see on TV. Just a wonderful guy, um, very, very passionate about what he does. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's he's a little high-strung, um, you know, but, uh, you know. It's, it could be worse. The, what I will say is that man, he you couldn't find a more genuine guy in all your life. We were shooting in a in a um, little place over in in Central Florida, right on the uh, Apalachicola River, in a in a little uh, diner, and everybody was coming up to him wanting his autograph. He made sure that. He took a picture with everybody and gave an autograph and made sure he took a picture with me at the end of the day, which I thought was really cool. You know, it's among my 
prize Facebook pr- connections. And I, I was funny. I was, I was just looking back at my memories on Facebook, and that is the most liked picture of any picture that I've ever had. It's, everybody knows Bill Nye the Science yeah, Guy. Everybody loves Bill Nye. Yeah, yeah. I used to watch that show all the time when I was younger. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he's very, very cool. Very cool guy. So That's really cool. Yeah. Um, in closing, I'd like to ask, what advice could you give to someone who wants to get into, like, say they want to do freelance work like you do? What would be some advice that you could give? Like, what would be the most important piece of advice you could give? Well, I think know who you are and specialize, especially if you want to work in film. Um, All too often, we've got guys who are, you know, jack-of-all-trades productions. You know, I can be an editor, I can be a shooter, I can be be a writer, I can be a producer, I can do it all. You know, and yes, you can do it all, but you can't do it proficiently. And I learned that kind of the hard way. Um, you know, I had to do it all when I was when I was producing. But what I realized when I started freelancing, um, and I, I was especially as a freelance producer, how great it was to be able to hire a camera operator whose sole job it was to make sure I got good picture. Hire a sound guy, whose sole job it is to get good sound from me. Hire a lighting guy, whose sole job it is to make sure that, you know, the lighting is good. Hire a makeup person, whose sole job it is to to get good makeup. These were all the little things that I didn't have to worry about, you know. And so I don't, you know, uh, I don't subscribe to the, well, you can do it all yourself and, and make you know, make movies. Now I understand how it is sometimes, you know, you know, who, who is it? Robert Rodriguez who says, if you want to make movies, go out and make movies, you know? And I absolutely agree with that. But I think a good producer is not somebody who can do it all, but somebody who knows somebody who can do it all, you know? And what I have done in my career, uh, not only just as a sound guy, but as a, um, you know, as a, as a producer is I've surrounded myself with people who make me look good. So I want you to be one of those people who can make me look good because then I'll hire you again and again and again. We have a really tight knit film community here. Um, there's a lot of guys who are making independent films and you know there's they're making them for little or no money and i and i applaud them for doing that and then we've got other guys who are you know are true production guys i mean i don't have any other job this is what i do all day all day long i don't work flipping burgers or do anything else i'm a sound guy or a, you know sometime producer and so you know i have always been kind of say, told people the other thing that you really need to know is know what you're worth and get what you're worth and that all ships rise with the tide if we have guys if we have 15 guys out there who are charging you know two thousand three thousand dollars for for decent production on a tv commercial and we've got four guys out there who are charging six hundred dollars for that who are the clients going to go to? 
they're going to go to the $600 guys, but what they're doing is they're, they're devaluing they're de- one, they're devaluing themselves, but they're devaluing the product as a whole. And so it makes it very, very hard for all of us as a community to be valued. I mean, I can tell you firsthand, there have been several feature films that have been made in this area. Feature films that have gone on to make money. Mm-hmm. More money than, than you know they've spent. But they, for whatever reason, are doing these things on a shoestring budget. I, there's, there's one film in particular I can tell you wasn't shot in Pensacola. It was shot over in Panama City. They offered me a job on that job as their lead sound guy um, for, I think it was $400 a week. Um, my normal day rate is almost twice that, you know, and I couldn't, plus they weren't going to pay any travel. They weren't going to pay any expenses, you know, $400 a week. And they're saying, well, you should be happy that you're going to be on this great feature film that is going to have this wide release. And, you know, you, you get credits. Well, I got to tell you credit, IMDB credits don't pay the bills, you know? Um, and as, as much as, you know, it, I, I want to say be collaborative and work with these guys and maybe you'll get something. You know, there comes a point where you have to value yourself enough and value the services that you do enough that you're, you're going to stop working for free, you know. I get a lot of grief from, from a lot of the local community because I yell. I, I'm constantly, you know, waving the, the flag for you know, better wages and, and, you know, don't work for free and all that kind of stuff. But to be honest with you, I will volunteer and work on anybody's project if they're upfront with me about what the situation is and they tell me what they're doing. What I won't do is go work on a project where somebody's going to tell me, oh, this is going to be great and we're going to give you a little money on the back end because nobody ever makes any money on the back end. Hell, I did the same thing with my own freaking movie, okay? And I feel crappy about it, okay? Um, I shot a a movie called Uncle Bob's Leg. We used a bunch of people um, and and we're finally now in post-production in this thing after years and years of kind of it being on the shelf, you know, and, and I feel bad because I promised these guys I would get the movie done. And a lot of things personal, professionally have kept me from getting the movie done. You know, I will say that the, that, you know, there's a lot of people around here that are making great movies and they're doing, doing really, really good stuff. Um, and, and I really hope that it continues, but I also hope that, that, you know, this foundation of good, solid people that we've built around here, there are good gaffers in this area. There are good shooters. There are good sound guys, you know, they're, they're great people in this area and, Mm -hmm. and, and we're never going to be Hollywood East here. You know, they'll, they'll, they may make a movie every six months or so here and it, they'll bring in 90% of their crew from out of town. The thing that really irks me is when they say, you know, oh, we've pumped so much money into the economy, but they're giving away all the high, la- high value, high paid labor jobs to these guys from out of town 
They're paying just as much money saying that they can't afford to pay a guy like right. me. You know, when if they they wouldn't have to pay for hotel, they wouldn't have to pay for equipment rentals, they wouldn't have to pay for a lot of different things, you know, and so that offsets itself, you know. So I you know, I mean I could go on forever about this stuff, trust me. There's there's a lot of Oh no, I I totally agree with you. Totally yeah. agree with you on all of it. I have a lot of pet peeves about it. You know, I, I, I mean, I would say we've got a great community here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There are, there are a lot of really good people. I think there are some, some people that are making some pretty amazing films with no money. But at some point, that's got to change. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's only so many free films. A guy like me or, or Kevin Almodovar, who's a great gaffer mm-hmm. you know uh can can work on we can only spread ourselves so thin you know having said that i will say and i post this about once a month and on the the um forums is is all you got to do is ask you know i'm if i'm available you know i'd rather go out and play and see if i can help out you know than sit around at home and wish i was doing something you know, if you're an up and coming filmmaker and you want a guy like me to come out and work with you, you can't expect us not to, one, try and get paid at first and then get mad at us when we do try and get paid. And I think that's the number one thing that happens to me a lot. It's like the first question I will ask when somebody says, hey, are you available to... I will say, well, what kind of budget do you have? You know, what kind of gear are you working on? Who are you doing? The, you know, what's involved? I want to know about the project because if I'm going to give of myself or give my time and my equipment, you know, I, I invested $25,000, $30,000 worth of sound equipment. You mm-hmm. know, that's a lot, a lot more gear. That's more gear than most camera guys have, you know. I want to know, and and that's not counting all the experience that I have over the years doing this stuff in front of, behind the camera, you know, doing sound, doing camera, all this stuff. I want to know that, you know, if I'm going to go out and play with this, that one, I'm going to be valued, you know, um, that, you know, at the very least, I think producers who are shooting these independent films, the very, very least, they should always put out for gas. Always put out for gas and good food. You put out for gas and you put out for good food, people will keep coming back, even if they're not getting paid their full rate. You know, and then if you get to be involved in a great project besides, you know, that's a good thing. I ask for things like, can I see the script? And I've had people get very offended. Well, why would the sound guy need to see the script? Well, why not? I mean, yeah. it's, it's my job. My job is to know what's going on. And, you know, but I... It, I run across all these these inexperienced guys who just don't understand the dynamics of truly what it is that a guy like me does and brings to the table. And I and I think I I speak for some of the other professionals in our areas, the gaffers and the groups and the PAs and all that stuff. The guys who who really do bring stuff. There's a difference between going out and lighting with a two or three piece light kit and and lighting with a you know two-ton group truck makes a big difference on Mm -hmm. how your how your show looks you know so you know don't if if you're gonna reach out to guys like us don't be afraid when or don't be offended when we ask the questions because 
my goal, if I'm going to come out, is to make your job, make your film sound as good as it can possibly sound. Whenever I get hired on any job, hired or even work for free, my goal is to never hear from you again after the thing is done until it's time to be aired. Because I know if I if I get to hear from a producer or an editor or something, I've done something wrong. Because, you know, they're having a problem with the sound. You know, the only time I want to hear from anybody is, hey, we've lost the sound files and we need you to resend the sound files. Everything else sounds great, you know. So I want to help make your project as good as it can be. People, I think, get so wrapped up in the so wrapped up in the making of the movie that they forget about the the important stuff, you know, and a crappy looking movie that sounds great will get watched, but a really good looking movie that sounds like shit, nobody's going to sit through. I'm not going to lie. I've been guilty of doing that because whenever I first started filming things, like it wasn't that I didn't worry about sound, but it wasn't like a, a top priority for me. But what made me pay more attention to the sound was doing this show. Well, the first few episodes I did didn't sound that great. And I'm like, wow, this, you know, maybe I should pay more attention to sound. And since then, that's like a top priority for me whenever I film things. Well, you know, and, and I mean, the sound guys say things like, well, nobody ever left the theater humming the lighting, you know. It's uh, <laughs> a good way of looking at you it. You know, and or, or no, nobody ever quotes the gaffer, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and, but, but by the same token too, you know, you can have something that sound sounds good and, you know, looks, I mean, with YouTube, YouTube has brought us into a world where you don't need lights. I mean, people will watch just about anything, you know, but if you think about all the videos that you watch on YouTube, how many times will you click past it? If you can't understand what's being said, you know, and, and so, you know, crafting, having good sound on, on your videos, whether it's a TV commercial or it's a industrial project or it's a TV show or it's a movie is, is highly, highly important. And having, that's why, you know, it's important. And I think I can't remember who it was that, that, uh, that said it was a very famous documentarian, uh, maybe Michael Moore or somebody like that. He, you know, suggests that you should spend, you know, at least a third of your budget on a good sound guy. And, you know, I'm not just saying this because I'm a sound guy. Right. I'm saying this because it's true. You know, a good sound guy can make or break a movie, you know, that's true. And so, you know, if you want to make, if you want to make movies, make movies, you want to make great movies, get good people behind you to make those movies. And I'm not talking about just sound guys, you know, and we got, we got them here. I mean, I, I don't, I can't think of a single person in this area that I wouldn't want to work with right now. There are some people that I would think twice about working with, but when push comes to shove, I think we all can and should work together. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Steve, thank you very much for the interview. It was fantastic. Well, I appreciate it. My thanks again to Steve Baker for that wonderful interview. It was fun talking with him about freelance work, uh, just hearing all his cool stories. And I learned a lot 
from this interview. I really did. It was one of the most enlightening conversations I've had when it comes to the production industry. Next week, we'll be having a little bit of a different type of episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. You'll be hearing a comedy show that I recorded at the Handlebar, which is here in Pensacola, featuring comedians Grady Ray and Matt Ward. Two very funny guys, so definitely come back next week and check out that episode. But until then, you can check out past episodes of this show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience. You can also follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience. You can follow the show on Twitter at DDE underscore podcast. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at Derek underscore diamond. And that's all I've got, so enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and we'll see you guys back next Thursday. (laughs) 